Last Sunday, in a brand new season in our church, we started a brand new series. We don't know how long this is going to go. Ultimately, it's going to be over a year. Uh, we might split it up into four-month increments, don't really know. Luke and Acts are extremely detailed. But last week, we began the unique story of the early church 2,000 years ago, spreading out and carrying the message of the resurrected Christ all over the world. And it began with an event called the Ascension where Jesus ascends to the right hand of God and leaves the responsibility of witnessing to a lost, dark, and broken world to his followers. And we gave the subtitle for this series, The Remnant on Mission. And what that means is there's a small group that remains after Jesus's incredible earthly ministry and after his resurrection. And that group of about 120, that's what we're gonna read today, carries the gospel to the ends of the earth. Ultimately, billions of people step into a right relationship with God. And where you sit and where I sit today in 2023 is a result of the story that we are reading on these pages of scripture. But we're not just reading a story about their remnant on mission. We're being called in our day as the remnant on mission for the glory of God. What does that mean? At our church, when we say remnant, we are talking about the faithful few. We're talking about the followers of Jesus who are radically surrendered to Jesus. We're talking about people who actually pray and have a relationship with God individually. No shame on those who do not, but we feel like for too long in the church, we've prioritized onboarding new people and sacrificed the power of God that fills up the church on mission to go to the lost in the first place. So at ACC, we unapologetically preach to the remnant. Like when I get in front of you on Sundays, I'm talking to people who are serious about surrendering to Jesus. And yes, we are always open and welcome for people who are checking out Christianity and who are curious about their faith. You are more than welcome to find a space here. But the person who's going to feel left out in our church is that half-hearted, cultural, I'm just a Christian because I'm in the Bible Belt and I want my kids to have some good values and I like this church because you kind of say stuff that's a little bit controversial sometimes. And so I just kind of want to be a little inter more entertained on Sundays. This is not the church for you. This church is about taking the responsibility of our faith seriously and carrying the message of Jesus to a world that is desperately in need. Part two, and we're going to turn there in just one second. I want to give you the title beforehand. Part two is going to be titled Prayer-Fueled Desperation. Prayer-Fueled Desperation. Can you look at somebody next to you and just say, pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. Some of the best advice you can give. Guys, just because we're at a new building doesn't mean you can ignore me when I tell you to talk to your neighbor, okay? You know, one of the great things about this space is I see all of you. We, we could have built this a lot bigger, but we wanted this to be intimate. I can see the facial expressions of those of you who are on the back, back row. And part of that comes with, what's up guys? Part of that comes with responsibility. Even last week, there were moments in the sermon I wanted to go, oh, if ever I needed to tell you it's a big deal if you get up and walk out of a service, it is in this building because it can be super distracting because we built it to be intimate. And we're all kind of sharing in a moment together. But please, when I tell you to talk to your neighbor, like it's okay, even if you're introverted. We just want to stir up a little bit of community in this space. We're going to talk about prayer-fueled desperation. And if I had to give that title a definition, it's simply declaring your need for God out loud. Prayer-fueled desperation is declaring your need for God out loud. There is no secret sauce to what God has done over the course of eight and a half years in the story of our church. But if we had to pinpoint one thing, it would be those three words, prayer-fueled desperation. We never want to graduate from desperation for God. And not just like knowing that you need God, but saying it 
and articulating it in an act called communing with God through prayer. So over the course of time, we've seen how going to God and articulating out loud, God, I need you and I'm carrying this and casting all your anxieties on him, creating a rhythm in your life and in our church of desperately going before the Lord and throwing things on him in prayer will get you access to the spiritual energy you need for the Christian life, but will also get you off the throne of your life and put God where he belongs. Here's something we need to establish, and I've said this in a previous sermon, but I wanna say it again. Without desperate prayer, we will be deflated of spiritual energy and inflated with selfish ego. Just take that statement in for a second. Without desperate prayer, we become deflated of spiritual energy and inflated with selfish ego. It means the longer you go without talking to God, the more your life becomes about you. That's why the heart of the Lord's prayer is about God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my kingdom come, my will be done in my life as I want it to be. So we get deflated of spiritual energy the longer we stay away from prayer and we get inflated with selfish ego. That means that the energy we desperately need to live the life Jesus died and rose for us to live feels fleeting. And if you're here and you're going, yes, that's always my problem. I always feel like I don't have access to this resource on the inside that's gonna give me hope and life and fill me from the inside. There's a direct relationship between you being depleted of that energy and your prayerlessness. Like those two things will always go hand in hand. And what, what else will go hand in hand is the fact that selfish ego becomes your default when you don't go to God in prayer. All of a sudden, even without even knowing it, I'm not saying you're consciously becoming arrogant and making your life about yourself. It's just that the longer you go without looking to God, the more you will look to yourself. And the vision of a day like today is that desperate prayer would become a norm in our church. We don't want it to be weird to be needy. We wanna be unapologetically needy before the God of the universe and say it out loud and watch him fill the gaps. Do you get self-sufficiency or total dependency? It's one or the other in the Christian life. And what if at ACC, it was actually strange to try to walk in your own strength and the more you did, the more people were willing to call you out on it. And the faster we go back to God in desperate prayer going, God, I need you. And all of our needs are different. All of our circumstances are different. But what you're gonna see in Acts chapter one at the genesis of the local church is that desperate prayer was plan A. Like they didn't try these seeker sensitive gatherings for a while where, hey, let's just be real sensitive about the Greco-Roman world and create an experience where we can entertain them and kind of trick them into accepting Jesus at the right holiday moment. And then maybe they'll get to heaven one day. That, and then that didn't work. And so then they started praying. No, no, no. From the beginning, it was like, we got one plan, God, prayer. And you're gonna see that worked out in a practical way in Acts chapter one, but you're also gonna see an invitation for your own life and what it means for you, where you sit right now in 2023. Did you bring your Bible this morning in church at all of our locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. Loving the Bible drill in the new building. I was at a college retreat all weekend. I mean, 90% of our college students are single. I don't know what's happening. Maybe Bible drill has failed. Turn with me to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, your Bibles look great. By the way, all of our locations, we see you. Acts chapter one, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week. So picking up in verse 12. Every week I'm gonna remind you that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to continue the redemptive story from Old Testament to New Testament. Now there was no Old Testament and New Testament back then, 
But Luke is connecting the dots of, hey, you know this story about the patriarchs and the Jewish people Israel God chose, but you need to understand that what Jesus did through his ministry, life, death, burial, and resurrection, was not a new thing that God started in this moment. It was the continuation of the story he's been writing from the beginning of time. So a lot of Jewish themes, and you're going to see several of them in what we're going to read in this passage. Luke, I mean, not Luke, same thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, if you're there, say I'm there. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples return to Jerusalem because that's what they were commanded to do by Jesus. It's about a Sabbath day's walk from where they were. That's like three-fourths of a mile, not far. And it says they went to the room where they were staying. Now, scholars debate about this. There's a really cool uh, belief about that room that they were in and then something that's more, ah, don't, don't ruin the fun. And scholars disagree about whether or not this is the upper room that the disciples were in with Jesus the night before he died. Some scholars are like, there is no doubt. Even the way Luke articulates it right here is like, this is the same room. But then others are like, they were in a totally different area of Jerusalem. There's no way it was. I don't know whether or not it was the upper room, but I do know that someone came up to me last Sunday after church and said, hey, you know what we should call that upstairs space where overflow is? I don't know if y'all know this, but there's a space for overflow right behind this wall. And it's on an upper level called the mezzanine. And I think the word mezzanine is super cool. It's fun to say. Look at somebody next to you, say mezzanine. Mezzanine, see, it's fun. And they were like, no, no, Miles, don't call it the mezzanine. Call it the upper room. And I was like, oh, that does sound good, except it's an open air space, it's not a room. So it's staying the mezzanine. Anyway, the upper room, there's, a, there's all kinds of worship groups called the upper room. There's churches called upper room, whatever, whatever, whatever. I don't know if this is the room that the disciples were in the night before Jesus died and it's the room where they went back to and pray. It would be cool if it was. We don't know that as 100% historical fact. We do know what they were doing in that room and that's the point of this passage. Joining together constantly in prayer. And they have specific needs that they were praying toward, and I believe they're going to teach you how to pray toward your needs in your life individually. Verse 15, let's, let's read this whole thing and then talk about it. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So if you were wondering where I got that number, 120, that's, that's where it's from, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. But with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. That's disgusting. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akildama, that is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us 
of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Y'all look up here. I know know there's some confusing details to that passage. Hopefully we're gonna make it make sense. Peter stands up as they're praying in this room, waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit to come. And he points out a need that is present among the people. He points out that Judas, who used to be in their number, not the Judas who was mentioned previously in the verses, but Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus the night before he died, he says, we got to replace his seat of leadership. And if you're a Gentile believer in the United States of America, like most of us are, we read that and we go, why? Just roll with 11. That's a whole football team. Like, you're, like why, 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 why does it have to be 12? What's the importance of 12? But remember what I told you at the beginning of this passage. What's Luke's purpose? Connecting redemptive story of Old Testament to New Testament. Who are the ruling tribes of Israel in the Old Testament? the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was no accident that Jesus chose 12. And it's no accident that in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, you 12 are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. This might not matter to us. This is huge to Jews who are trying to figure out how in the world this story of theirs is connected. Also the number 120, that's not an accident either. It took 120 council members gathered for an official Sanhedrin meeting to be considered legitimate. The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish ruling council. So what what Luke is establishing in this chapter is, hey, God is connecting what he's been doing to what he's doing through the local church right now. You know how there had to be 120 gathered for it to be an official meeting? Well, we had about 120 in this room. You know how there were 12 tribes? We got 11 leaders, we need a new one. And he quotes a few verses from the book of Psalms and he says, whoever this apostle is, They have to be someone who was with us from Jesus's baptism by John the Baptist up until now, his ascension. Isn't that crazy that like the 12 disciples were not the only ones following Jesus around the whole time? They had special seats, but Peter's able to grab two guys and go, Lord, we got two guys that we're gonna put in front of you. One of them is a guy named Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also known as Justice. And he doesn't get the seat. And I think it's because God didn't want there to be any confusion about his name. I mean, this guy needs to, I'm just kidding. He needs to make up his mind. It's like, are you, are, which one do you want to be called? You got a nickname and then a sub nickname to the people who know you best. And then the other guy is just Matthias or Matthias, however you want to pronounce it. And the lot comes out to Matthias. Now casting lots, when you think of that, you usually think of like rolling the dice. And I know that there are people listening to me right now who are like, this is a major decision. And the disciples of Jesus are going to leave a decision like who's gonna be the 12th apostle up to chance as they seem to gamble on who gets this seat. But that is not what is happening right here. I need to make this so clear. In the Old Testament, you have a pattern of doing what is called inquiring of the Lord through real signs in real time. 
So don't read this and think, oh, they're making a major decision and they're flipping a coin for it. Like, I, I guess if I have another major decision, I'll choose between this and this by just, we'll draw straws or we'll draw cards and we'll figure it out. No, 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 that's not what's happening. When you read the Old Testament, there's a way of going before God and going, God, I expect you to answer and work in natural means toward giving me a response to what I'm asking for. A good example is when Abraham's son, Isaac, is going to pick a wife. And he tells his servant, hey, we're gonna go with the girl who doesn't just offer us water, but offers our camels water as well. And Rebecca says, here, have a drink of water. And can I also water your camels? And Isaac's like, you can water my camels anytime. Like I'm, I'm ready to marry you. And, and it's like God moves through a real circumstance. Y'all are laughing way too hard. Do like a real circumstance and situation. This happens in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to take on the Philistines, even though his dad and some of the key officials are hiding under a tree. He grabs his armor bearer and he's like, let's go up against the Philistines. If the Lord's with us, they can't stand against us. But then what does he say? He says, when we get there, if they tell us, come on up to us and we'll, and, and, and they say, come, then God's given them into our hand. But if they say, hey, stay there, we'll come down to you. God has not given them into our hand and we need to run. And then they get there and they're like, come up to us. And Jonathan's like, that's it. The Lord's given them into our hand. There's a real pattern in the Old Testament of using real physical signs as God's response to your prayers. But pay attention, this needs to be noted. This is the last one of those moments in scripture because the very next passage is Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit goes out. So I believe inquiring of the Lord is a real thing, but we do it differently as spirit-indwelled believers. We go to God filled with the Holy Spirit and seek wisdom through the Holy Scriptures, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and through the wisdom of counsel of people around us. And then sometimes through all three of those filters, we don't even really get a clear answer and God calls us to take steps by faith and trust him in real time that because we sought his will, he's gonna be with us whether we go this way or this way or this way because he's in us. So the Holy Spirit changes everything. Don't leave here drawing cards about the will of God in your life personally. Okay, how in the world does this connect to us? Everybody come back, everybody look up here if you're wondering, okay, what do the disciples casting lots for their 12th seat, how in the world does that connect with my life in desperate prayer? The thing that matters the most about this passage is that when the disciples gathered together, they prayed, but they prayed expectantly. Like when they prayed, they fully expected God to respond. The vast majority of us, I could argue, the greatest problem with our prayer lives other than our prayerlessness is the fact that we pray and we would be surprised if God did anything about what we said in prayer. And we walk away from moments alone with God in prayer. And it's like, if somebody told you, hey, God's gonna like move based on everything you said. You're like, no way. He's actually gonna do something with every, I mean, I was just doing that because I gotta check the boxes of I actually put things on the Lord. But you mean he's really moving in my life and doing real things in real time? Part of the reason why he doesn't is because we don't expect him to and we're not watching for him to. So what is it about this group of believers that has them so convinced that when we pray, someone is listening to us and someone is responding in real time to our prayers? What is it? And I believe their expectancy was connected to their intimacy with Jesus. They expected God to respond because they knew God deeply and intimately and personally. And if you're here and you're at all frustrated 
in the amount of the presence of God that you're experiencing in your life individually. I'm, I'm right there with you. We are all on that journey together. Prayer is a complicated journey and the message cannot simply be, we gotta pray more or we gotta pray these words or we gotta pray like this. But I would argue going before God with expectation is about going before a God who you know, not a God who you've been around and you know about. See, because how, how are the apostles distinguished from Judas in Acts chapter one? What's up with Judas taking his own life and being cursed? Like some of the graphic language about Judas's death points out that his end and destination looked totally different than the rest of the disciples. I did a whole sermon about this in our first Peter series, but I'll give you the summary right here. I believe Judas loved what Jesus could do for Judas. The other 11 loved Jesus. And that's the difference in prayer. If your prayer life is founded upon what Jesus can do for you, instead of just knowing Jesus as the treasure and sovereign joy of your heart and life, you will have a prayer life that is stagnant and inconsistent at best. Your expectation is limited because you don't have intimacy. And you don't have intimacy because your pursuit is the stuff he may or may not do, not him as the prize and the treasure. So how, how do I start? Where do I begin on this journey of going deeper with God? It begins with desperate prayer. You can write this down. It's going to make sense in just one second. The pathway to greater intimacy with God runs through expressed desperation for God. Say that again. The pathway to greater intimacy with God runs through expressed desperation for God. So you want to know God intimately and have a prayer life where God's responding to your requests in real time and where you're living on the adventure that we talked about last Sunday. That's awesome. But that intimacy begins with expressed desperation for God in prayer. And the key word of that entire sentence is the word expressed. See, because desperation for God that is known and not expressed is a powerless desperation. It's one thing to say in your mind, I know I need God. And it's another thing to say with your mouth, God, I need you. Those are two totally different responses. Some of you, as you hear this sermon right now, you're like, I know I need to pray more and I know I need more of God. But there, and that's good, conviction is good. But there's a difference between conviction and application. And the application is, is there a moment, are there times in your life individually where the words, God, I need you in this way are actually being written on a page or spoken out loud so that when God does respond, you know it's God who you're getting to know on a deeper level. And for so many of us, our prayer lives are sabotaged by the fact that most of them are theoretical and stuck in our minds and never get spoken out loud for God to have the opportunity to move in a powerful way. The whole, Miles, you're telling me the whole sermon, week two in our new building in Acts is like, tell God I need him out loud. Yes, that is a dangerous prayer because he'll answer. Because your pursuit isn't God, I need this, it's I need you. And, and, and those things sometimes can go hand in hand. I believe God wants to hear our requests, but at the bottom of our heart has to be a joy that delights in God. I have found in, in just my pursuit of God personally that there is such a big difference between my awareness of what's off kilter about my relationship with God and my spoken requests for God out loud that changes my soul and my spirit. 
I told our college students this last night, and this is a small kind of insignificant example, but this week was a little bit overwhelming for me. I was not planning on preaching all weekend at the college retreat, then coming back to preach week two at our new building, but college pastor goes down, engages, getting better every day. Thank you for your prayers and your entire town to go gift cards. Y'all are a phenomenal church, and uh, he's getting better and better every day. Um, but I, I was like, okay, this is a lot. And by about Wednesday or Thursday, I was just like overwhelmed by it. Small compared to the burdens that some people in this room are carrying, I realized it's just a week that I had. And what I will normally do if I'm off is I will let that overwhelmed feeling sink into my mind, numb myself with social media or sports or something on the side and just kind of survive and glide through the week like so many of us do and react to my daily life instead of be proactive through prayer and sort of feel this woe is me, low grade anxiety, but try to push through it. But instead, I went to God frustrated in prayer. I was like, God, this is a lot but I just wanna name out loud that I, I need you to transcend my mind. I need you to take over the level of stress that I feel and pressure that I feel that's not on me, it's really on you. So I start, I start naming all of these verses out loud and then all of a sudden I'm feeling in my spirit like, oh man, this doesn't feel like dread and a burden that's too heavy. This feels like joy. I, just feel, I get to go preach to 500 of our college students in North Georgia in a beautiful scene in the mountains and then drive back late the night before and then preach all day in our brand new building to a group of people who are desperate for God. But what shifted my spirit? Prayer. But if that prayer was theoretical in my head, like I should really pray versus getting on my knees and articulating out loud, God, this is what I need from you in real time. And this is what I'm going through. And this is what I'm sitting in. That type of prayer creates a pathway for the presence and power of God to fill you in whatever you're carrying. But if it never gets spoken, the power and response doesn't get poured out. You have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And I truly believe heaven has provision and power and freedom like on the edge of heaven waiting to get distributed to you as a child of God. You just need access through available prayer. And we're not doing this. There's a million things I could say about prayer. And, and every time I preach about prayer, I believe the main battle is whether or not we pray. I did a message I think it was called The Lord's Prayer. This is a good title. In, uh, in Luke this past fall, I highly encourage you to listen to that message. But for this one, I want us to just live in verse 14 and apply this to our lives. Is this helping anybody in church this morning? It's helping me. I'm like preaching myself into more of the power and the presence of God. Look at verse 14. It says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. That verse alone has more application to your life than you even realize. So what, what do I want you to do with everything that you're hearing today? This is gonna be the simplest message ever. I want you to apply the passage to your life. Point number one, guys, pray constantly. What does it say? They join together constantly. Now this was a 10 day season in the church where they're waiting on the Holy Spirit, but constant prayer is a theme throughout all of the scriptures. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says we should pray without ceasing. That does not mean cancel your entire life and just pray all the time or learn to multitask and stay in constant prayer with God, whether you're driving or at the grocery store or at school or doing whatever, whatever, whatever. Praying without ceasing is about unbroken communion with God where the dialogue of prayer is not a stop, start sporadic thing, but a constant relationship that you move in and through all the time. And I this is like a breakthrough revelation this week. I never realized how much the stop-start nature of my prayer life was poisoning my opportunities for more of the power and the presence of God. I, like many of you, spend the beginnings of my prayer time 
apologizing for why it's been so long since my last one, trying to catch up on the sins that have stacked up and the moments that I regret, and even just the state of my heart emotionally. And I've never realized how much, it's not that you had to catch up on everything you did wrong, it's that you had to catch up at all. Why did you come out of the communion you have with God? Because you took your eyes off of this communion that you have with God all the time. This happened to me, and this is probably why I was as stressed out as I was Wednesday or Thursday. This happened on Monday and Tuesday. So last Sunday, banner Sunday in my life, all time. We'll never forget what happened last Sunday. And leading up to it, I probably had more revelations of who God is and personal things spoken over me from the scriptures or my own times with God than I ever have before. I mean, I got journals that are just full of, I feel like he said this, and it had nothing to do with anything that, 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 that we're preaching about, but just like, man, identity stuff, family of origin stuff, future stuff, like God was speaking to me. And Sunday was amazing and it was a celebration. Then you go to bed Sunday night, but I spent the majority of Monday and Tuesday just reacting to busyness not picking up on all these revelations that I have with God. So when I go to God in prayer on Wednesday, I hit stop on Sunday night when I got home and I hit start on Wednesday and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm picking up the pieces of everything. It's because prayer is created to be a constant dialogue between you and God, not something you hit on and off throughout the week. And what if, not that you're talking to God all the time, but what if every time you go back to God in prayer, you just pick up where you left off before? And what if the mentality about prayer that you're supposed to have is supposed to be that instead of half of your prayer time trying to remember when in the world the last time you prayed actually was? The enemy gets us through distraction, gets our minds in a million different directions. And if you will actually go, hold on, hold on. I don't have to go down the shame cycle of apologizing to God for everything I did say or didn't say the way I wanted to or every whatever, whatever, whatever. No, I just got to pick up. It's a relationship. He's my shepherd. What's the last thing he said to me? What's the last thing I said to him? And if you're picking up with consistency like that, you will notice the presence of God is not waiting in a church service that you got to wait for next Sunday to get to so he can speak to you. He's available all the time. You're just not listening. One thing that has helped me the most in this building is that we have a prayer room. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's right off the lobby. And if you come visit our church, this is one of the main rooms I want you to see. Y'all should walk it. If you all did this, it would kind of be a mess, but y'all should walk through it on your way out today. Because it's crazy how loud the lobby is with all the chaos and how close the prayer room is to the lobby, but you walk in and it is like walking through a portal into the presence of God. It's so quiet, so peaceful. They keep like really chill music, prayers all around the walls. And it's just like, oh, wow, I can slow down. Well, this week, I, I mean, I'm like, I get to work here. I can just go do that when I get overwhelmed. What if like we have a prayer room down the hall you could enter into. What if one word could become your portal into the presence of God at any time, no matter what you are doing? And it is the word that we sang over and over again, Jesus. What if there was a quiet peace that came over you all throughout the day of unbroken communion with Jesus who says, abide in me, remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That verse in John 15 alone is enough for you to go, okay, why am I trying to do anything apart from you? Here's the portal, Jesus, Jesus. Pray constantly, that's number one. Number two, I got two more and, and we're gonna be done. We're gonna get out quick today. Uh, don't speak too soon. Pray, okay, pray constantly. Number two, pray in unity. This one's huge, pray in unity. They all join together constantly in prayer. The vast majority of our church 
doesn't have any regular rhythm of praying with other believers in community. And I, I'm just as guilty because I don't know if I would if I wasn't the lead pastor. How many of you legitimately get together with friends just to pray? Hey, we're all getting together at so-and-so's house. We're just gonna pray for a little while. I know of a handful in our church, not many. And if the vision is desperate prayer is a norm and the vision is, hey, our whole church is a prayer team, not just people with red name tags, we're gonna have to get together and become more unified in prayer because prayer is not just about the closet where you meet with God one-on-one. It's about the power of united believers together calling on the kingdom of God to come in our day. And if ever, look up here and do not miss this. If ever there was a time our church has to become more unified in prayer, it's now. The enemy's efforts to divide and sift through what's happening here are about to get ramped up to a new degree because we just took new ground. And more than we need to be talking with one another about, well, I would do it this way, or I'm just frustrated about this, or talking behind one another's backs, or gossiping. It's hard to gossip about someone who you pray to the God of the universe with. If we have like a regular rhythm of united prayer, what kind of an opportunity have we been given to step into more of God? So I would love it if it was not weird to get together and pray, or even in a side moment in the lobby, just go, hey, do y'all wanna pray real quick? Prayer is our one word for the year in 2023. Coming into the new year, I recommended a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, phenomenal book, and I know hundreds of you read it. But let's not stop at, I got some new rhythms when I get alone with God. Let's step into more of God and see. The Holy Spirit gets poured out when believers are praying together. And where two or more are gathered, the promise of his presence is there. Let's go before God, pray, constantly pray in unity. And lastly, we're done guys, pray desperately, pray desperately. When you pray, pray with honest language about where you are in a given moment. Think of the person you know best in life, the person who you trust the most, could be spouse, the best friend, somebody close to you. Think of how you talk to them and how naturally you articulate emotions and feelings and thoughts. When you go before God, stop trying to manufacture language that is not authentic to who you really are. Learn to be yourself in prayer. And when you pray desperately, articulate to God, these are the real needs and real moments that I'm bringing before you right now. God, I need you and this is what I'm sitting in and keep it present. This is how we pray without ceasing because we don't cease to pray about wherever our feet are in a given moment. So I wanna give our church an opportunity right now. We're gonna practice all three of these things in this gathering. We get an opportunity to pray at the same time with thousands of believers. Think about that right now. And we get an opportunity to articulate out loud to God, God, I need you. What better symbol of our need for God than the body and the blood as we take communion today? You can get your elements out for communion. And if you didn't get one at any of our locations, just lift up your hand right where you are right now. There's people from our team who are gonna be walking around. I know a lot of people either came in late or maybe didn't know to grab one on the way in. We try to do this as a weekly rhythm and discipline in our church because we believe that the sermon should always be anchored by the cross. I didn't come before you today to give you advice about your prayer life. I came before you today to put Jesus on display and go, here's what he offers. And through a little cracker and a shot of grape juice, we remember the body and the blood has given you access to God. If you want to take a more 
proactive step. I know this is not everybody, but we have communion available at the stations around this room. And the way we do that is just breaking the bread off and dipping it in juice. Once again, it's not for everybody, but there's also kneeling stations and prayer cards. We wanna create more moments in our gatherings where all the pressure is not on the next song or the next moment, but where we can just be in the presence of God. So I trust the Holy Spirit to download this, how he's going to. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this is a great moment to pray for the first time. And maybe your prayer is just, God, I don't believe you're real, but if you are, show me. It's a great prayer. And it's a great prayer to not just think about in your head, but to say even a whisper out loud to God. I don't know what this moment looks like for you, but let's create space for the presence of God before we sing. Y'all enjoy taking communion, then we'll come back together.